0: Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you are enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast on the medtech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. In this episode, our host, Giovanni Loricella, and our guest, Keith Mathini, serial entrepreneur, discuss being a physician entrepreneur, the importance of common sense, his various companies, the downfall of physicians not getting any business training during medical school, the importance of connecting and networking, what it is like being an entrepreneur, What it was like figuring out he had to take external funding and where did he start, weekly accountability meetings and why he does this in all his companies, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Keith Matheny.
1: Thank you very much for being here with us today. This is the MedTech Money Podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. Very pumped about this one because we're finally going to be breaking open this stereotype of physician founders. And, and I can't wait for you to tell your story here. And so formally an entrepreneur, I, I've talked to many entrepreneurs. And here we are with a physician entrepreneur like yourself, as well as investors around the world. And and what I've come to discover is that there's no silver bullet specific formula or even magic about how to raise or invest capital in MedTech or build companies for that matter. So my goal here is to extract insights to demystify this process and and help MedTech innovators benefit from the information we're about to pull out. So we have an audience of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors listening in now. And what I'd like to share is your stories and advice with what I imagine is that first time founder or CEO and has no clue on what lies ahead of them in this journey of raising capital. So I thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And once again, the reason why we're here is two things. Obviously, we're gonna talk about building companies and raising capital around that in all of that capacity but more so, and and I think it's a a topic that we have not covered yet on this podcast, which I'm very excited to do, is understanding that notion of physician founder. And of course, there's a stereotype that plays along with that, but there are some very successful physician founders out there, including yourself, which we're about to learn your story right now. So let's get into it. I have a few open-ended questions that I want to ask you. The first one being, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? Or would you add anything more if I'm missing something?
2: Thank you so much, Giovanni. And absolutely, both the people and the money you choose to surround yourself with are critical in lifeblood. If you had to pick one or the other, I would say the people. And I sit here today with the privilege of, of talking about my story because of huge teams of people and a host of of benevolent uh, folks that have helped me all along the way. So the people you choose to surround yourself with are very important. The people you choose to distance yourself from, that's also equally important as this can be a difficult process and not everybody has uh, the the same outlook on this. But money is very important. Uh, I have multiple companies at different stages and it always comes down to uh, a money issue, especially in these, these early stage companies. Um, what can we do? You're watching every penny, literally working uh, oftentimes for equity and future value just to put every precious dollar of your investors' money into production and commercialization. So uh, as we all know, so many great ideas, great patents, great inventions, uh, have never quite reached their full potential simply because of the lack of money. So both of them, in my opinion, are critical.
1: And as a physician founder, whether it's how you came up with the idea, stumbled across the problem in a practice, or even in an entrepreneurial setting or business setting, um, and then what you've seen play out in the development of innovation technology and, and startups, medtech startups, do you believe in luck? And how much does luck play into the success of developing med tech?
2: Yeah, there, there is a role for luck. But as the cliche goes, luck and fortune favor the bold. <laughs> and so, uh, especially when we talk about the idea of a physician founder, a physician entrepreneur, uh, we know that those individuals uh, in general are very intelligent, well-rounded people. And so, Each of my colleagues uh, has great ideas. I think it comes down to being bold enough to stand up out of the trench and take some flack and hear a lot of no's and and face a lot of headwinds. I'm trying to think of every cliche I can, but to continue to push forward, to be tenacious. Um, I find folks that are like that tend to be the luckiest. But luck does play a role, Giovanni, of course, in, in timing, um, in the competitive landscape. Physicians have many good ideas, but they may be a little ahead of their time, oftentimes a little bit behind the time, uh, and they find that other folks are already working on that or have already protected the ideas, at least from an IP standpoint. And so I've been fortunate with the, the companies that we'll talk about. My timing was good in all cases. Uh, and so I would, I would chalk that up to sheer luck.
1: And with regards to all the technologies and innovations that you've been a part of creating and watching them grow into companies that were ultimately investable, from your experience and wherever that was along that pathway, what do you think is the most investable skill set? or characteristic of a medtech entrepreneur? And in other words, what's the one thing that you believe investors look for if they're gonna invest in early stage technology?
2: Common sense. This is an easy question for me. Um, You know, I am far from uh, the most intelligent physician. I'm far from the most knowledgeable polymer chemist or, you know, business strategist, you name it. But I've been blessed with some common sense. And uh, now that I'm afforded so many opportunities to help my colleagues push their ideas forward, like I have, you know, it always starts with whether or not something should ever get off the proverbial whiteboard. And when we're talking about health tech, you know, something that ultimately would be used in patient care, we have to have a clear path for how a physician can use this in a patient. And usually what I mean by that is economically. How much is it going to take to bring this product to market? And once it's on the market, how much will it cost for regulatory before the FDA lets us use it in patients? And then after that, how much will it cost for us to use it on our own nickel before Medicare CMS gives us a code to pay for it and then how much longer after that will the private insurers, the United Health Cares, the Blue Crosses, before they then pay for it? It's a long, long path when we're talking about a, a med device, a medical technology, a, a pharmaceutical. And so common sense. Is this a, a product that by the time years from now it's actually available? Will it be paid for? Will physicians be able to use it in patients? And so that's what I always start with when I'm I'm sitting in the boardrooms and and people are, you know, brainstorming and coming up with brilliant things. It's it's pragmatic and practical and we can actually execute on it. And if not, no matter how great the idea is, uh, we have to erase the whiteboard and, and start over.
1: This isn't typically my next question, so this is a a new novel side question based on what you just shared with me, but you said common sense is this investable skill set within med tech, but the way you just framed it, do you believe that physician inventors and physician entrepreneurs may have a leg up when it comes to, quote unquote, common sense when it comes to developing med tech? Because ultimately, you guys are end users and, and you ultimately know what the very back end of that is supposed to look like, which if you're starting something from A and you're used to being an end user at Z, um, you know what actually has to happen to hit all the way so that you guys can ultimately use it and get paid for it. Do you think physician entrepreneurs maybe have a little bit of an advantage of having common sense just based on your career?
2: Uh, it depends, Giovanni. I, I, I think the whole concept and process of bringing a product to market is a little bit of an unknown for physicians. Um, In my learning, and my experiences uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, it really has surprised me how difficult it is. Most of my physician colleagues, um, you know, they have an idea and they think, oh gosh, you know, we'll we can do this and this and have it on the market in three to six months. And as those on this podcast know, it's three, six, 10, 15 years. It's not a few months to do all this. And so I think amongst physicians, and we'll talk about it in more depth, I'm sure later, you know, our path is very prescribed for us. Most of us go to school until our early thirties straight through and never have three hours of business 101. one and certainly not uh, product development. Those you know, few that are fortunate to go through places like uh, Dr. Josh Macauer, Stanford School of Biodesign, uh, Dr. Tom Fogarty founded that. Those are few, few of us. Most of us really just uh, learn the technology that our teachers use and perhaps that we're detailed on as we get out onto our own in practice and, and don't have a good concept of what it took to get that product in our hands and to allow us to use it for patients. And so I would have to say, no, most physicians are not aware of, of what is feasible from a um, production standpoint.
1: And then going back to your, your entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship. That, so you know, if, if you don't have a, a leg up and now here you are and we'll get into your story, but clearly being a physician entrepreneur, if you knew what you know now about the arduous path that you were just describing of being an, a medtech entrepreneur, a medtech innovator, a founder, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or would you just be a physician and stop there if you could do it all over again?
2: Absolutely. I love I love how my career has unfolded. And I love being a physician too. Uh, I'm at the point in my practice 20 plus years after my training at Vanderbilt. Uh, where every patient that I see is, uh, you know, has issues that I love taking care of. They're wonderful people. Uh, I'm practicing in a good part of the world. Uh, So that's great. I love being a physician. I'm very fortunate, but I love (laughs) what I do on the side, which is not on the side. Now, obviously it consumes the majority of my time. I absolutely love uh, product development and, the whole business side of things that so many have, have taught me. And uh, this is what I plan to do when I grow up is just to continue to run these companies and future companies, even as I uh, ultimately dial back my, my actual practice of medicine.
1: And so I'm, I'm curious about this perspective. I have asked this question to numerous, both investors as well as entrepreneurs, but now this physician entrepreneur split, Curious about the, the response. So you're a MedTech founder and in some cases within your company the CEO and founder of the organization. Is it glamorous being a MedTech CEO or being a MedTech innovator? Is this idea of being at the helm and changing the world and, and being at the top, is it as glamorous as people who have never been there and done that before think it is? Or is there something, a different feeling that you would give it a, a, a name?
2: Yeah, great question. Well, while I love it, uh, it is not glamorous. You know, I, one of my favorite phrases. I can hear all my team members at various companies rolling their eyes hearing this again. But uh, I always say, especially early stage, whoever's closest to the mop, go mop the floor. And ultimately, the bug stops with me. So, like anyone in leadership, you know, um, you're really the servant of everybody else. In a good way, I don't mean subservient, you have to lead, but there is nothing um, that I'm not willing to do for our companies to win. And so it's not just all the the cocktail parties and and hobnobbing and and networking, those things are fun and they're certainly part of this job. But at the end of the day, uh, in my opinion, a leader should be the one working the hardest and that's what I try to do. So I wouldn't say it's glamorous, but again, I absolutely love it.
1: And we're close to finding out more about who you are and obviously the companies that you've built. And we'll get into all that. But I first want to talk about the names. And I've been saying this as plural because there are multiple companies. You have USENT, you have Septum Solutions, and you have Sleep Vigil. What does the name of your companies mean? How, and more importantly, if there is a fun story or even a short story behind each of these names, how did you come up with them or what's the significance behind them? Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, so briefly, what are each company? Well, USENT, USENT Partners is the, the long name, is a formal group purchasing organization at GPO uh, in partnership with the, the world's largest GPO, Vizient also based here in Dallas. And what that company does is provide value for my ear, nose, and throat colleagues. Uh, ENT is a very expensive specialty to practice. The technology and the supplies that we need to care for our patients, uh, we all spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just on those, separate from overhead, separate from payroll, those malpractice, any of that. And so usc ENT has a suite of 30, 35 contracts directly with the providers of these technologies, bringing meaningful discounts to physicians because we're purchasing as a natural national organization. And that was born out of a consulting company uh, that I started many years ago to help people run better ENT practices from a business standpoint. And so we're still able to do that too. And day one, we provide cost savings, yes. And that's, that's meaningful, typically 20% or more. But we go right then into identification of new revenue streams, areas the practice can grow and layer on. And uh, the whole goal there is to give physicians autonomy and independence. Um, we probably won't get into it on this call or this podcast, but maybe in the future talking about investment in medical practices that's a very interesting topic. And my goal is, while I'm very much for that concept personally as a physician, my goal at USCNT is to allow physicians to remain independent, and not be forced into working for hospitals, working for the government, working for the insurance companies, or selling their practice against their will. So, USCNT, the name is really reflective of. ENT practices across the country, and that we are a national organization uh, trying to elevate the care and delivery of ear, nose, and throat to patients. Septum Solutions is quite different. Septum Solutions is the first medical device company that I've I founded, and it's built around uh, surgical implants, bioabsorbable, so dissolvable implants that we use after nasal surgery. The septum in the name refers to the nasal septum, the dividing wall between the two nostrils. And one of the devices uh, stabilizes that septum after we straighten it surgically while it's healing. It's also made of materials that provide other beneficial uh, functions to the nose, stopping bleeding, preventing infection, et cetera. And so hence the name septum solutions. And the last one that we will discuss is Sleep Vigil. And that is a technology company. It's really an app. And what it does is it takes data from consumer wearables like Apple watches and Garmin's and Fitbits and Aura rings and puts it in a uh, form that it communicates with the physician's electronic medical record. And so it's, specifically pertains to those with sleep apnea. Uh, Those are patients that stop breathing during their sleep at night and drop their oxygen to low levels. And so these consumer devices tell the physician when there are dangerously low levels of oxygen and other sleep abnormalities. So it allows us essentially to monitor patients on a nightly basis. When we talk about that in more depth, you'll see how poorly we're caring for these patients now in my opinion and why this really elevates the patient care but in congruence with my other uh, with USENT for sure it's a nice new revenue stream for physicians so uh, the word vigil came to me simply because it allows the physician each night to be vigilant about their patient with this very severe disease
1: so the man behind the voice, lo and behold, thank you for all of that. Keith Matheny, tell us who you are, where are you based, where you came from, how you've built your personal, academic, professional life leading up to being the man on the screen with in front of me right now and, and leading all these companies after founding them. Who are you?
2: Yeah, well, uh, as you might have surmised by now, I'm a ear, nose and throat physician. I practice in North Dallas, where I grew up uh, and I've been back here following my training. I, I did my undergrad at, at Baylor University, my medical school in Houston at the amazing Texas Medical Center, University of Texas at Houston. And then was fortunate to do my internship in residency in, in surgery and head and neck surgery in, at Vanderbilt in Nashville, but came back home. We had uh, two small babies at the time. They're now both in college, both of my daughters. Uh, when I finished my training at Vanderbilt and, and we came back here, it's a Dallas-Fort Worth is a wonderful place to live. It's a great market. Um, and also the grandparents were here. So Giovanni, you know with a new addition to your family, uh, how important it is to have extended family uh, to help you as you, you raise those kiddos. And I joined two wonderful physicians, one of whom is retired now. The other one is still in practice with me. But like most physicians, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we go to school until we're 32, 33 years old and have not a discussion about the business sides of medicine. We're trained by brilliant people, Nobel laureates in many cases and, and widely regarded physicians and surgeons. But think about it, they're all in academic institutions. And so there are other folks in those medical schools taking care of the business affairs of these physicians. So we are trained by people that do not run businesses in most cases. And that's not entirely true. Many are involved in administration, but suffice it to say, we get no even lip service towards the business of medicine. And then we're unleashed on these multi-million-dollar businesses. And so what physicians tend to do and my partners and I were no different when I joined them is we tend to delegate to those that have the most tenure in our practice. And that typically is someone uh, with a nursing degree of some level that has been around 20, 30 years and has kind of sort of learned the business sides of medicine, how to interface with insurance companies and negotiating your contracts, how to bill codes for the procedures that you do, Uh, looking at the revenue cycle, the accounts receivable, and then looking at the ancillaries. Your nose and throat is one of those specialties. We really have seven different specialties with a lot of ancillary revenue opportunity from hearing aid sales to allergy shots to dealing with sleep apnea uh, to doing facial plastics and cosmetics like Botox and injectable collagen, voice, on and on and on. And so the, from a business uh, perspective, ENT is a wonderful specialty, but as physicians, we just received no training in that. And so when I joined my two um, partners, I was extremely busy from my first day of clinic, just from their overflow. In you know, my first week of practice, I had 50 new patients. Uh, during COVID, I would have killed for 50 new patients now, even 20 years later. And so I was doing surgeries even my second week of practice. So they were doing something right. Namely, they were being great physicians. But everything else was uh, really suboptimal. We were by a dying hospital, suburban hospital. Uh, this staff was a conglomeration of three different practices that had merged together. And so the, the three groups didn't really get along. That showed poorly in customer service and organization. Um even the physical office at that time, 20 years ago, was 30 years old with 30 years of dust everywhere. Um, so I talk about those days, so the ancillaries, I should mention, were all losing money. It's, it's very difficult to do that, but they figured out how to do that. And so uh, I talk about those days, we were busy in spite of our surroundings. And so what really ignited my passion for the business side of medicine was just looking around and no one else wanting to pay attention to these things and so i took over business operations and used that as my little laboratory to learn made a lot of mistakes made some good guesses but by four or five years later we had moved out of that office and moved into three modern brand new offices in different parts of our catch area taking advantage of different referral networks Uh, We had gone paperless before that. We didn't even have a website, let alone computerized charts. And uh, we had figured out what SEO looked like back then. We had figured out how to partner with mid-level providers, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners, and how to utilize them optimally in our practice for our patients, uh, and also from a revenue standpoint. Our ancillaries were quite profitable. Um, Our revenue cycle was very tight on and on and on. And so at that point, other physicians around Dallas-Fort Worth took notice and said, hey, will will you help us bring on a PA? Will you help us fix our hearing aid division? Will you help us start allergy? And so I formed a consulting company um, named Solutions for Otolaryngology. I like the word solutions, as you can tell. And uh, that is the underpinnings of what USENT became. And really enjoyed over the years the last that's probably 15 years ago uh, managing all or parts of many different practices some in-house some just a la carte and really learned a lot and I I hope uh, brought some meaningful profitability to my physician colleagues but also some peace of mind where they could just focus on their patient care and so that uh is still near and dear to my heart. And it's one of the main reasons that I uh, plan to continue practicing for a while is just to stay down in the trenches and to really stay razor sharp on how I can help my colleagues run better businesses. Now, simultaneously with that, a very important event happened, Uh, really the renaissance of your nose and throat occurred. So I mentioned uh, Dr. Josh Macauer earlier. So Josh, founded a company out of his Explorer Med incubator uh, called Aclarent. Aclarent is the company that uh, Johnson & Johnson acquired in 2011, major transaction, but this would have been seven or eight years before that. And they commercialized balloon cygnoplasty. Josh is a very, very clever person and had worked most of the 90s in uh, cardiology, dealing with angioplasty catheters. And it made sense to him and some of his colleagues that if someone having sinus surgery at the end of the day really just needs the sinus openings to be larger, why were ENT surgeons doing these large destructive procedures on every patient, not just the worst patients, but on every patient, even virgin noses? Why not try something less invasive? And so after a lot of work, they brought the concept of using angioplasty catheters to the nose into the marketplace. Now, much to their chagrin, and I, I still uh, speak with the folks that were in leadership uh, at a Clarent back then all the time, two of them just last Saturday on a board call. They decided, which is to my benefit, uh, to come out to community physicians like me. Most companies before that, there hadn't been much innovation in the ENT space at all. Uh, ENT was really still kind of in the dark ages, and and we really practiced as we were trained. And uh, many of the techniques we were doing in the early 2000s were not materially different from the late 1800s. No exaggeration. But the balloon changed all that. When a cleric came out to the community physician, uh, they drew some ire from academia for sure. But from my perspective, it ignited the other passion in my my career, product development. They gave someone like me a voice on a national level. They allowed me to participate in clinical trials. They allowed me to comment and, and help with upstream products. Um, on and on and on, and so that led to uh, me developing some sort of a reputation for being an early adopter of technology and someone that was a, a good test pilot. And I think it was uh, we talked about common sense earlier, but I think also it's my honesty and my uh, even honesty when something is doesn't come easy to me or I'm not very good at it. Um, and so I think the engineers and the upstream uh, marketers at these te- at these uh, companies liked to run their ideas by me simply because I I might tell them their baby was ugly, but I usually had some suggestions on how to to make it prettier. And so the next real elevation of my career and who I am came in 2011 when Lisa Earnhardt, who was uh, at the helm of Intersect ENT, Intersect just uh, was acquired by Medtronic within the last few months, quite a large transaction. But when Intersect finally obtained their FDA approval for their first bioabsorbable sinus stem, it came to me to do the first couple commercial cases. And again, that opportunity would have never happened had a Clarent leadership not given me the chance to be one of the early balloon uh, launch physicians. And that's when I really saw uh, their product, a bioabsorbable stent, very much like a cardiac stent. Again, we're seeing a theme here. Cardiology has been replicated in ENT over the last 20 years uh, that had drug elution capabilities. So the ability to time release steroids into the healing nasal cavity after sinus surgery. So I immediately thought of many other uses for technology like this, as I'm sure others did too. And, and Lisa and her team Uh, were extremely honest and ethical with me. And they basically told me, Keith, shut up. You don't need to be just spouting these things off. You need to protect these ideas. And once protected, come back and present them to us and we'll see if we can collaborate. And it's hard to believe, you know, I'm fortunate to have dozens and dozens of patents issued now. This was only 10 and a half years ago, but I had no idea about that process. Again, we have no visibility into that during our medical training at all, what it takes to file a patent, et cetera. And so I stumbled through that process with the help of a fantastic IP firm here in Dallas and and filed some patents and was kind of off to the races then. Um, That's, I I know we really wanna talk about funding and that's really, I think when my learning began on how a device uh, comes to market, how difficult it is. And so I uh, literally, with the proverbial cocktail napkin, barely more than that, kind of knocked on the doors of all the large medical device companies, the J&Js and the Strikers and the Olympuses of the world, and had my little idea and offered to co-develop it with them. And it took me years to realize that, you know, while these, these folks were very honest and ethical as a whole, I mean, some people tried to steal the ideas, but as a whole, they were very honest and ethical. They just did not have the capacity for early stage ideas. And that was my own naivete. Uh, but I played around in that for years before finally uh, taking on people that could help me get the product to the goal line. And that's, that's probably a good place to stop and, and see if you have any questions about that or if you want to take this in any certain direction. But um. I want to leave this topic with how fortunate I've been to have so many people treat me well, to take me under their wing, uh, to teach me the ropes, if you will, that's afforded me the last seven or eight years of product and
1: technology development. So I loved all of that because my actual question that I wanted to ask you was, why does this stereotype of physician founder exists and I think the story that you just shared with us is is quite clear it's answered we, we now know why it exists um, certainly through your personal experience of being an innovative physician and, and opening yourself up to industry coming to you and, and having that reputation where they kept on coming back to you right obviously which built your mind your your spirituality of of innovation within this space and and wanting to have that desire to do so. Um, I guess I, I wanted to lay a little bit heavier on that, not necessarily of why the stereotype exists, but what advice would you give to those physician founders or entrepreneurs or physician wannabe entrepreneurs who might be listening into this podcast right now and say, listen, we know why the stereotype exists. We don't even touch business until we're in our early 30s, if we're lucky, even to have a shot at that. Um, And it might even be much longer, if ever. So we know why it exists. But what advice as a physician founder yourself to those physicians who are listening right now, who would like to be founders or currently are and massively struggling, I, I connect with physicians who have ideas fairly regularly, sometimes they're still in the clinic. And they call me and they say, I have an idea and what can you do to help me? And I'm like, whoa, you're super early. Like we're we're still at napping stage right now. Um, Other ones have told me that, you know, they've been trying to raise capital for this idea for a year and a half. And then they tell me their strategy and I'm like, okay, and that makes sense why. Um, So my question for you is if you had a loud speaker to speak through which you're on right now to all these people listening in now, speak to those physician entrepreneurs or physician want to be entrepreneurs as to how we can break that stereotype and, and be a better entrepreneur with our physician background?
2: Great question. And I've thought a lot about this topic. Uh, people ask me all the time. And I maybe would like to answer it from both perspectives from the group of investors, you interface with physicians who have great ideas, but really no knowledge of what's the difference between an angel and a VC and a PE. And this, I mean, literally, I've never even heard the acronyms, let alone know what the implications of each stage mean. Uh, And also from the physician, so we'll start with the physicians, right? What I first tell them is, don't do what I did. I realized, uh, and while people were, were very fair and sincere with me, Um, I did waste a lot of time thinking that Johnson & Johnson or Olympus or somebody is just going to stop down their entire upstream production and their (laughs) quarterly drive for sales growth and everything else that they're doing, what makes them successful to develop this early stage idea. That was a complete waste of time. Uh, And I spent every bit of four years wasting that time. And so my first advice is you've really got to assemble a crack team, folks that are experienced in execution uh, of early stage ideas that know where to find the funding that you need uh, that will protect your I, your IP. I think as physicians, our education, and this is more existential and philosophical, Giovanni, but I, I think it... Is what
1: that's my style, by the way. So go with okay, that. Okay, good. Good. We'll,
2: so we'll we'll move it in that direction. Uh, our education makes us very comfortable being out on an island, and we can handle anything. Uh, you know, I I remember at some point late in my surgical training, finally realizing that. I just didn't have the anxiety anymore. No matter what walked into that Vanderbilt emergency room, I knew how to take care of it and to, to at least keep that patient alive. Right. And until I could load the boat and have colleagues to help that's in my experience, not (laughs) the way to bring products and technologies to market. You actually need much earlier to form this team to really Um, again, have people with expertise on how to take it from the napkin to the patient. And so while I don't regret it, because I learned an immense amount during those four years and met some fantastic people, you know, many of these products and technologies would already be on the market uh, had I not wasted that time. And so I think that's probably one reason physician entrepreneurs get a little bit of a a bad rap, if I might introduce that uh, negativity into the conversation, is that we don't know when to uh, bequeath control. And and if I might, um, you know, not all of us are humble and contrite about our limitations in business, and and really want to remain actively involved, whether it's best for the company or, or not. And so, I learned early on to really rely on trusted individuals, trusted partners that had done it before. They knew where to access the, the capital that we needed. They, they knew how to interface with the, the various regulatory agencies and, and just to be the most efficient. And what I'm proud, of, the one uh, thread that runs through all of my companies is we have we have executed with minimal funding. Uh, we, have been very judicious in fundraising and dilution, um, but also in how we spend every nickel. And uh, I'm proud of that in, in, in all of these different efforts.
1: I now wanted from to- From do...
2: standpoint, oh, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I freely admit even being well down the road in this, I still, when someone asks me, okay, I, I need X number of dollars and I have this, uh, who do I call? Where do I look in the, the yellow pages? What, who do I Google? And so I, I just wonder if there's um, a way that we could bring the two sides together. We know that there are uh, investors at all phases, those that want to deploy you know, six figures, those that want to deploy nine figures and everyone in between, uh, those that have the stomach for early stage, those that would prefer to pay more for something that's totally de-risked and, and already out in wide wide distribution. Um, it's hard for physicians especially to know where to even plug into the system to get help. And so that may be something we talk about in the future is, is how do we bring the two sides together to make it a little bit easier for the right matches to occur?
1: Well, I like leaving off or at least putting that out there as a, as a topic because everyone listening in, we could use your help, come together and think about this because that's obviously a problem that we need to solve. And and going back to the, you've mentioned it numerous times throughout our discussion, this idea of being a physician founder and finding the right people, right? So limited business experience, all of a sudden, aha moment, and you love product development, you know how the end user experience should be because you're likely finding the need and then you think of the need and now, where do we go next with product development? So that's where you've, you've, you've gravitated towards now. But it, it sounds like even before thinking about fundraising, your answer is surround yourself as this physician entrepreneur with the right people. If that's your next step, and we'll keep it super philosophical, like you mentioned, which I like, again, I personally love um, before getting into too much of the weeds and the mechanics of all this if you have to surround yourself with the right people, how did you go about that throughout your career? Like when you realized that you were limited on certain things or you didn't know the acronyms or whatever it may be to go raise capital or regulatory affairs or whatever it may have been, but you knew that you needed to find the right people to surround yourself and believe in what was ever in your head to get it out and eventually to a patient long down the road. How did you start? Where did you find your people?
2: Yeah, I think that's where the luck came in. Um but again, keeping it existential, that's also, as, as they say, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Um, that's happened in my life so many times. When I think about USENT, which grew out of just the local consulting company, um, I was fortunate that uh, I happened to be on vacation four or five years after I formed that company with my uncle. My uncle is a physician entrepreneur as well. He founded U.S. Oncology, a huge McKesson company now, and um, really enjoyed working in concert with that large corporation and before that with the private equity firm Welsh Carson Anderson and Stowe, high caliber healthcare um, PE firm. And so he kind of put me in touch with the right people to help form US ENT, to make a local practice consulting company, a national platform to help hundreds and thousands of ENT physicians around the country with the help of the right people. In Septum Solutions, uh, again, it was was serendipity. Um, You know, some local uh, friends and colleagues uh, that had their own med tech investing fund, kind of got wind of what I was doing and, and kind of the, you know, the meager offers for co-development that I had received with my ideas and patents. And instead said, hey, we, we know how to execute on this. We know how to really make your, your dreams come to life uh, to do this lean and efficiently. And so, uh, man, especially that one, I wish I had met them earlier, but again, I, I probably wasn't ready. The concepts weren't ready. Um, But that would have been a much quicker path to market. And then uh, in sleep vigil, (laughs) it was really, again, serendipity. Um, I'm passionate about sleep. Uh, I'm a rhinologist, so I like to pick boogers, if you will, and uh, using fancy techniques. But the nose is an important part of sleep problems, too. And so that's, that's why my care of sinus and allergy disease bleeds over into caring for sleep. And so I was put in touch with a potential capital service for USENT to be one of our suppliers there to provide credit plans for patients with high deductibles or expensive hearing aids or whatever that they wanted to finance. And while that deal didn't make sense, I really liked the people that I was put in touch with and they were involved in an entire area uh, that I was not aware of three or four years ago called remote patient monitoring, namely what I talked about, being able to monitor patient electronically day by day, night by night, whether it's their blood pressure, their weight, or their blood sugars, in my case, uh, their blood oxygen levels for sleep. And so just being put in touch with the person that had the technology solution via a business person, Again, that's where the, the serendipity and the luck happened in my life. And, and so, um, again, I believe that I was ready for that. Um, and it happened right at that moment. But it's hard to just Google you know, who you need. And that's where I, I think we all need to connect better and say, all right, these are the companies as an investor that I'm interested in helping. Now I'm kind of becoming that, right? You know, within USCNT, I, I definitely have plans to have our own incubator, a safe place where, where my member physicians can bring their ideas and whether it's me or other physician entrepreneurs can kind of give them some guidance. But it's also where investors can check in and say, hey, we're interested in investing in this sector. What ideas do you have? And so hopefully I can be some sort of a matchmaker there. But I think we can do that on a larger scale, whether it's out in Silicon Valley or kind of the other med tech hubs in Minneapolis or what
1: have you. So I wanted to ask this and spend the remainder of our time, hardcore black and white storytelling from a physician entrepreneur perspective and, and however this unfolds. But um, let me just put it in a box real quick, just so I can understand the USENT, it, it's really more like a platform service provider, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, pretty much Yeah. So.
1: Okay. And then when you have like the actual med tech itself, the medical technology, the tangible technology that you've built, that's under Septum Solutions. And then, like you mentioned, the tech, which is really more of an app, is Sleep Vigil. Right. Okay. For Septum Solutions and for Sleep Vigil, who are these quote unquote tech companies. They're funded thus far. Like, have you gone through rounds of funding or a round of funding, external funding for both of those companies?
2: Yes, yes, we have. So, and in, in even in USCNT now, even though we're we're now you know uh, generating great revenue, et cetera, we did have an inter- intermediary step where we took on some equity simply so I could expand my uh, sales force, um, really just to have a backstop. But in med device, so more of the traditional, what I would imagine you talk about on a lot of these podcasts, we absolutely did. And so my early partners uh, did really a friends and family round. Uh, one of my partners is, is one of the Texas uh, state senators. And so uh, several of the other uh, politicians in our state uh, invested relatively small amounts of money, even though it was extremely meaningful to us um, in the company. So that was the first round. And really, um, we're just now at the phase of commercialization, and we're going to take on a a modest amount just to take us through um, our sales goals where we we think we can exit. So we're just embarking on our second round of fundraising, if you will. And and still, though, Giovanni interfacing with the family offices, again, because it's, it's a relatively small investment, we're not Having to go to the the sand hill roads of the world yet for this company, and I'm I'm proud of that. I I really have learned a lot from from those people at at the uh, organizations there in in Menlo Park and Palo Alto, but this company doesn't need it. Uh, our commercialization plan is such that we're using stocking distributors, and the distributors are generating great revenue by buying our product. So. You know, it's, it's actually very interesting when we go to market day one here in the next three to four weeks, we really already have substantial sales because our distributors have purchased the product. And so um, with that revenue and ongoing revenue and the modest amount of investment we've taken, we, we have more than enough to compensate our team. In Sleep Vigil, uh, we've done it even leaner. <laughs> so uh, our economic model there is... Uh, The physicians that utilize our technology just pay a small subscription fee, Um, and that's our source of revenue. Otherwise, that company is, because one of my partners contributed the technology, uh, which is huge, that was more or less his capital contribution to Sleep Vigil, Uh, we really don't have any ongoing costs other than uh, a few employees to monitor the accounts, generate invoices, uh, and troubleshoot issues. So, even USCNT is "quote unquote" big as it is now. Uh, we run that with a very lean team, um, uh, excellent sales professionals that uh, are interfacing with these practices and always identifying new opportunities that practices can benefit either with savings or new revenue streams. Um, but it's also not a very expensive company to run, even though it's a very profitable and valuable company. Uh, I'm told. We'll see. We'll see at exit, right? But uh, I'm sure it will be. And so I haven't had to do a ton of fundraising. Now, if we talk to Lisa Earnhardt at Intersect, uh, who I mentioned earlier, you know, she had to raise a lot of money. Uh, the, their technology had a much tougher regulatory path. Uh, they had to do PMAs, and so you know, the, the time and the money spent on those trials required quite a bit of fundraising. Um, You know, so it it all kind of depends. I've been fortunate or maybe I've done it intentionally, subconsciously uh, identified areas that we can get to market uh, at a value, but still have huge opportunity there.
1: And I think this mechanical question that I want to get out here, and it doesn't matter if you've raised series A through Z, you've taken external money before, right? And going back to this, philosophical moment in time, like you mentioned, where there's physicians who get educated up until their early 30s, and they still don't know how to spell business 101, let alone understand it. Um, And all of a sudden, here you are, you, you create these ideas, this innovation, you're an entrepreneur at heart. But there was a moment in time that you did have to think about and then act upon taking external money. Whether it was for USCNT on expanding equity, like you mentioned, or whether it was through the very close connections you have within Texas that did the family and friends for septum solutions, um, but that click moment once again on this loudspeaker speaking to all those physician founders who have this beating heart for innovation and they would love to be an entrepreneur and they know what it looks and feels like because they see the press releases and they hear the success stories, et cetera. But there was a moment in time when you never took external funding before, no matter how small or how large. When you realized that you had to take external financing and funding and then had to act upon that, what would, what were the mechanics of that process?
2: Yeah. And Where did you even start? yeah exactly um so again it, it's not just a uh, obviously it's a very formal process you know it's it's a, a very public process from a tax standpoint from a record-keeping standpoint from um and so on my each of my teams we have very good in-house legal counsel they're actually equity partners in these companies that govern those transactions where I thought you were taking this question is how, what did that feel like? And I immediately answer um, a ton of responsibility. You know, I believe in all my ideas and thankfully the market has proven them to be valid and, and, and successful, but it's one thing when it was just my own money um, that I was paying legal fees or traveling around <laughs> uh, it's, An entire, at least for me, it's been an entirely next level experience when it's someone else's money. I feel so responsible um, to win, to be successful, to provide them fantastic returns on their trust in me. It's very personal for a physician entrepreneur, I think, maybe all entrepreneurs. When someone else gives you a large sum of money because they believe in you, not even so much the idea, but the idea too. But they believe you will execute. Um, I mean, I appreciate that, but it also is something that constantly drives me. Uh, you know, early on, I learned the importance of communicating with with them, with investors. And in each of these companies, we have very regular calls if if they choose to. Some some you know are fine with just occasional check-ins, but really. Um, apprising them of what we're doing. And even the next level, I've been blessed with a lot of investors that uh, provide great counsel, so-called smart money. So not only did they they back us financially, but they really put their fingerprints on the business and the way it's evolved by their experience um, participating in, in discussions and decision-making. And so while well, I have when I talk about great teams and in all cases, I'm also talking about my investors um, almost to a person. they've all left their mark on, on these companies and the success for sure.
1: I want to leave off with this part A, Part B question real quick and, it, and it's an impossible question um, and a challenging question because there's so many more than just one. But I want to, I do want to leave off on a ha- aha moment for those listening in blended between becoming an entrepreneur as from a physician, as well as the business side, the true business side of whether it's raising capital or finding the people or simply the mechanics and operations that go into taking your idea from a napkin and making an actual product, right? The aha moment that you were like, wow, that's I had no idea that that happened, but that's, that's really, really cool. Like that's a positive aha. And then the negative aha, we were like, I never thought in a million years, it was like that. I never thought it was going to ever be like that. It didn't feel as good as I thought it was going to feel, or I can't believe that that really does happen in the real world. So I guess this the simple way of asking for once again, you speaking to those entrepreneurs out there listening in your entrepreneurial experience of aha, building a company in a good way and the negative way and some counsel that you would advise entrepreneurs to think about as they, Become entrepreneurs themselves.
2: Absolutely. For me, um, the the positive aha, you know, I I used to carry around uh, those zippered pad folios, you know, so legal pads, and I had business cards and probably the real cocktail napkins and everything stuffed in there for each of these companies um, for years. And I used to joke about, you know, how much this this pad folio is going to be worth someday. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I obviously believed it because we executed on it, but once it became real um, and when it became real for me, a critical part of my business is is weekly accountability meetings. I mean, I I do it every Monday. One company I do on Tuesdays just to to kick off the week. What did you do? What are you going to do this week? And then did you get it done? And what help do you need? All that kind of stuff, and and that's a place where we can talk about the ugly things. And I, I just I still have moments where I, I sit around the call and I look at the all stars that I'm working with in all these companies, and I think it's no longer just a legal pad I'm carrying around and a bunch of emails. This is real. These are these people's livelihoods. People have invested their money, their retirement savings, into these companies. You know. So that was the positive aha is that. Yeah, that stuff I dreamed up actually is working. And I'm really thankful and grateful for that. The negative ahas, uh, you know, to end on a negative note, but, you know, this hasn't been a, a primrose path with no hiccups. I mean, it's been a long time. And there have been times when you wonder okay, is there going to be enough money or time before I have to just call time of death on this idea? Um is this a good use of my time? Should I be playing around like this? or should I spend more time in my medical practice where I know I can earn a good living and and feed my family proverbially, right? But even more than negatives, uh, you know, all along the way, people have overestimated their contribution, especially to um, the IP. and so i've I've had people that have, um, you know, there's been conflict about uh, ownership. There's been conflict about uh, you know certain companies that heard my ideas early on uh, wanted to air quotes help me develop it and make me a hourly consultant and basically take the entirety of the idea away from me. Um, those have been few and far between. I think the other aha is you know not not every potential investor. Um, is on the up and up. And so I've been I've been surprised at at some of the strings attached when someone says, oh yes, we, we have no problem with this funding, but we need this finder's fee. We need we need XYZ. Uh, oftentimes things that then I'm not quite sure were were even legal and ethical. And so um, that kind of stuff has surprised me, but you just I don't put a lot of energy there because really the vast majority of my experience has been so positive. People have been so helpful. They're working on their own things. They want to see others win too. Um, It's just been so much fun and it's so fulfilling to see these ideas coming to fruition. They're still relatively early stage, but, but now they're out in the wild and they're doing well. Um, so again, I'm just grateful how my career unfolded. Um, it would have been great just, just to be a doctor, but to have all these other um, ancillaries has been truly rewarding.
1: I couldn't imagine ending on a better note than that. Once again, going back to our philosophical and existential style of conversation. So I, I hope that everyone who has been listening in on this got a feeling of what it feels like to be a physician entrepreneur, because I, I believe Keith, you, you portrayed it incredibly well. I personally learned a lot about the other side and I don't have a lot of insight to be honest with you of, of really what it feels like to be a physician, and I never will, but at least from hearing your story, uh, what it feels like to be a physician who really looks at innovation through a physician's eyes. And so we have never covered that yet on this uh, podcast as a physician entrepreneur. So I wanna say, thank you so much for your time. Keith Matheny, physician entrepreneur extraordinaire, for your time, for sharing all your insights and more stories and advice for all those listening in. This is the MedTech Money podcast series where we demystify raising and investing capital in medtech. Thank you so much, Keith.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.